Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Left of Straight Show with your host, Scott Fullerton, as we discuss everything under the rainbow sun, from LGBT issues to foodies, entertainment to books. Join us as we talk to some of the most interesting leaders and celebrity LGBT guests and allies on the Internet. So grab a cocktail, it's always happy hour somewhere, and enjoy the show. Now, here's your host, Scott Fullerton. Well, howdy, 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 everybody. Welcome to the Left of Straight Show. It is Thursday, July 16, 2020. I am your host, Scott Fullerton. Hope you guys' this week has been relatively smooth sailing. Joining me tonight, I have interns Justine and Lobiana in the studio, and they're going to hopefully join me later on tonight. A little host chat, so we have the time. We have a chock-full show for you tonight. Let's talk about last night real quick. If you missed last night's show, we had a great show. We were supposed to have two interviews. We only ended up having one. Our good friends, Terry Ray and Mel England, were supposed to be on the show last night for a live interview. Their uh, play, Electricity, which Terry wrote and they both starred in, was supposed to start tonight doing live streams every Thursday for the next three weeks. And it's a really excellent play but uh, they're doing it the way they're doing it in COVID is they, they have an empty theater that it's a two-man play that Mel and Ryan were doing. Um, excuse me, Mel and Terry are doing. Then they had four stagehands kind of helping them out doing all of the lighting and things like that. And one of the stagehands got COVID yesterday. So they had to close the entire production down and quarantine for two more weeks. So uh, we're going to push them back for a couple of weeks. We'll have Terry and Mel on real soon. So we did have our great friends, Jeff and Josh from J&J Buzz. Our fiance is out of Nashville, Tennessee. Had a great pop culture minute yesterday. And then good friend of the show, Sam Harris was on. If you're old like me, you remember Sam Harris as the winner of Star Search, the very first one back in the day. That was pre-American Idol talent show. And he's gone on to do great Broadway and television and singing all over the place. He has a new book he just put out. It's a uh, literary fiction book called The Substance of All Things. So we talked about that yesterday as well. So if you missed yesterday's episode, sure to jump on over to the Leftist Trade Show archives and listen to it. Uh, subscribe. You'll never get miss an uh, episode. We'll always let you know when one comes on. And if you something you want to listen to, go for it. It'll be fun. Tonight we have a full show, though. Like I said, in just a couple of seconds here, I'm going to start off with our Thursday Foodie Minute with our special correspondent, Ramis Ellis from New York City. Guys, she did it two weeks ago. She's doing in tonight two more amazing recipes, chicken parmesan and pulled barbecue pork sandwiches. Just listening to it made my mouth water earlier today. And then we're going to start off with a live interview with singer, songwriter, and activist Ryan Casada. And uh, we're going to have intern Royal sitting in on the interview with me 
Uh, Royal got the interview with Ryan and has been a personal hero to his. So we're going to talk to both of them in the first uh, segment live. And then I'm going to do a pre-taped interview that I just had the day before yesterday with Edwin Alexis Gomez to talk about his new film, Joyride. He won a uh, Latinx PBS uh, grant to make this movie, and it's showing this week and next week on PBS stations all over the country and online. So we have a great interview with him. We'll play that next. But let's jump right into it. I hope you guys haven't eaten yet because you're going to be hungry after this. We're going to play a little bit of our Ramis Ellis Friday, our Thursday foodie minute here. And when I come back, I'll introduce Ryan in just a second. So you listen to Left of Straight show right here on the Left of Straight radio network. Take it away, Ramis. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. My name is Ramis, and I am very ready to talk about food. Yes, this is Ramis. I know I might sound a little crazy, but when I'm not out having all the best food ever, I have a day job that requires me to use my voice a lot, so it strains it, and at the end of the day, I sound a little bit like this. Spending all this extra time at home has been different but weird, I think, to say the least. Like, for some of us, we might be used to working from home, while a bunch of us are probably a lot more used to commuting, traveling, and kind of being outside for the most part. Since the lockdown began, I have to say I took it quite seriously at the very beginning, at least. Um, I just wanted to be as careful and, you know, as, I guess, observant and just vigilant. I don't even know the right words I'm trying to use here, but basically I just wanted to take all the precautions that I needed to to feel comfortable and also safe. Now, let's not forget, some people might call my behavior a little bit insane. That's fine. That is totally okay. And I have come to terms with the fact that it might have been a little bit nuts. But again, no one knew what was really going on for the, you know, the the totality of things. So I was super, super scared. But I'm still cool. So let's not forget that. Okay. One of the things that I tried to get myself to be a little bit more um, careful about was my takeout. So I didn't want to order out too much because you started hearing stories about, you know, all these restaurants closing and and in my mind, you know, germs were everywhere. <laughs> like it was just one of those things that I felt like I couldn't escape and it was doing a real serious job on my mental. And I felt like the only way that I could really remedy that was just to take a break on going out and ordering out and things like that. I mean, obviously going out was like not an option, but as far as takeout went, I felt like at least at the beginning I needed to take a pause and just do my own thing and just figure out, you know, what I felt good about. At that point, I was like, okay, we're going to start cooking. Um, And the last time I spoke to you guys, I mentioned a couple of recipes that I thought were really fun to make, and I would definitely encourage anybody to do the same. And I figured today we can kind of keep that same thing going, except I want to give you guys some recipes that made me personally feel a little bit more fancy than I actually am. Um, And all that, all I mean is just like, You know, these are recipes that you can make at home and really put something nice together for you and your significant other, your best friend, your roommate, your mom, whoever. And it would be nice to just kind of make these couple things. You know, it's a little bit more complicated, but they are delicious and, again, some of my favorites. The first recipe I'm going to hit you guys with is a very simple chicken parm recipe. Now, everyone, I feel like, has had chicken parm at least once or twice in their lives, right? Now, this one is going to be a little bit different because the chicken is baked and not fried. Here we go. The recipe I'm going to share with you all is good for four servings. 
So what you're going to need are four uh, chicken breasts. It doesn't matter how big they are, but you're going to need about four. Uh, you're going to need about a cup of breadcrumbs, some grated Parmesan cheese that you're going to then add into the breadcrumbs, but we'll talk about that later. You're going to need some uh, parsley flakes, one to two eggs that you're going to beat for the chicken. You're going to need about a half a cup of flour, uh, maybe some salt, some pepper, nonstick cooking spray, uh, and then you're going to need some spaghetti, pasta sauce, and some mozzarella cheese. Once you have all of your ingredients together, we'll get to work. Now, if you're anything like me, I don't really enjoy beating the chicken breasts, like to make it flat. <laughs> so if you can, I suggest getting the thinly sliced chicken breasts. But if you're okay with the banging out the meat and everything, grab whichever one you want. And if it's a little bit on the thicker side, let's try to flatten it out. After you're done with the chicken, you're going to put that off to the side and you're going to preheat your oven to 375 degrees. Once you have that started, you're going to go ahead and start putting your dry ingredients together. So the first thing we have is our breadcrumbs and our Parmesan cheese, right? We're going to put those together in the bowl, mix those up, and you're going to add those parsley flakes as well and get those going in there a little bit. Next, you're going to grab your egg or eggs and you're going to go ahead and crack those in a bowl, start whisking them up together. Also, just make sure that they're in separate bowls. I feel like I don't need to say that, but then I don't say that, and then things happen. So just make sure that you have the dry ingredients, aka the breadcrumbs and the cheese and the parsley flakes in one bowl, eggs or whisks in another. And now in your third and final bowl, you're going to get your flour, and you're going to mix that in with your black pepper. I personally chose not to add any salt, um, because we are a low-salt household, at least as much as possible here. <laughs> so I did not add any salt in my recipe, and if you would like to add a little bit, go for it. What I did add, though, was a little bit of paprika and a little bit of cayenne pepper. If you're feeling, you know, interested in trying those together, add a little bit to the flour and whisk it in with the black pepper. And the last thing we're going to do now that we have our workstation ready is get our baking sheet together. So you're going to grab a safe oven baking sheet, of course, um, I prefer to line it with aluminum foil just for the cleanup process. The chicken might stick to it, but, you know, to each their own. Once you've prepared your baking sheet the way you feel fit, you're going to go ahead and get that non-stick cooking spray, and you're going to spray it all over the sheet. Very, very important here because you do not want your chicken to stick. And so we start to assemble. You're going to first take one piece of the chicken breast. You're going to dip it into the flour, making sure that you coat all over the chicken. So every inch of the chicken has to be coated in this flour. You're not going to go crazy. You just want to make sure that, again, it's lightly coated. After you're done with dipping it in the flour, you're going to take it over to the eggs. You're going to dip it in the eggs, again, making sure that it's completely coated. You're not going to go nuts. Let your chicken drip with the egg above the bowl just so that you can catch the runoff. You don't want to carry this over all over your counters. The less mess, the better. So you want to let that egg run off as much as possible. After you've given the egg a chance to fall off the chicken a little bit, you're going to go ahead and bring it over to the breadcrumbs. Coat it up with the breadcrumbs. Now here you can go as light or as heavy as your heart desires. <laughs> I mean, don't go insane, but you can go ahead and be a little bit more free with this one. Now that you've gotten your breadcrumbs and your Parmesan cheese all over the chicken, you're going to go ahead and lay it on the baking sheet. Lay it out so that you have room for all the other ones. Make it as neat and as nice as you want. And you're basically going to rinse and repeat until you've done this with all pieces of chicken. So again, you're going to do first step in the flour, second step in the egg, third step in the breadcrumbs, fourth step, line it on the baking sheet. Once you finish this with all four and or more pieces of chicken, you're going to go ahead and get that cooking spray again, and you're going to cover the chicken with this cooking spray. Now again, don't go nuts but you also want to make sure that you give it a nice, complete coating. 
once you're done with that, you're going to go ahead and pop it in the oven and set a timer for 15 minutes. Now the recipe calls for 30. The reason I put it in for 15 is because after that first half, I'm going to go ahead and rotate it around because to me, I feel like that gives it a more even cook. Some people might think that's crazy. That is just how I do things. Keep it in the full 30 if you want, but if you want to rotate it after 15 minutes, give it a shot. While your chicken is going ahead and cooking in the oven, you're going to go ahead and start making your pasta. Very basic recipe. You're going to fill up a pot with water, add some salt, and a little bit of olive oil. Let that get to a boil, and then add the amount of pasta of your choice. I would say go ahead and stir the pasta in every couple of minutes just so that they don't stick to each other. And, you know, once it's that soft or as hard as you prefer, go ahead and turn it off and then drain out the water. Now that the initial 15 minutes has passed on your chicken, you've gone and you've rotated it, another 15 minutes has gone by, you set the timer, it's finally gone off, you're not going to totally take the chicken out just yet. You're going to want to leave it in for an additional 5 minutes, just so you have a chance to put some mozzarella cheese on top and allow it to melt. So first you're going to get your pasta sauce and or marinara sauce, whichever one you're going with, put a little bit on top of each piece of chicken, throw a little mozzarella cheese on there, give it 5 minutes, and then you're good to go. Now you're going to grab your pasta. Now you're going to grab your good chicken, <laughs> you're going to cut it up, whatever you want to do, throw it on a plate, throw it in a bowl, and enjoy. The next recipe I'm going to share with you is for pulled chicken sandwiches. Barbecue, by the way. This recipe that I'm going to share with you is for a serving of eight, alright? So be prepared for this to be a uh, couple days worth of food. This recipe calls for three pounds of chicken breast. Now I know that that sounds insane, so you probably don't want to use three pounds. You can use one to two, okay? The first time I made it, I actually used rotisserie chicken. Um, I think that it came out fantastic. So if you want to go ahead and get a pre-cooked rotisserie chicken from, you know, whatever local supermarket, I would definitely suggest that. Next, you're going to need about one to one and a half cups of barbecue sauce. Um, I used Sweet Ray's Honey Barbecue. This is not an endorsement, but I mean, holla at your girl if y'all are feeling like it. Um, but yeah, it is definitely one of the best ones to go with. Next, you're going to need about a half of a medium onion. Well, you know, it all depends on your choice and how badly you like onion in your stuff, but I promise this is really good. So about a half a medium onion is good. Make sure it's grated and you keep all the juices as well because you want to put all that in there. You're going to need about a tablespoon of olive oil, a tablespoon of Worcester sauce, <laughs> and about two tablespoons of brown sugar. Oh, and last but not least, totally forgot to mention this first. You're going to need a slow cooker. Yes, a slow cooker is the breadwinner for this recipe, okay? Now that I've left the main ingredient for the end, let's get started. <laughs> okay, so you're going to go ahead and open up your slow cooker slash crock pot, and you're going to put all these ingredients in there together. So everything, the chicken, the barbecue sauce, the onion and its juices, the uh, olive oil, Worcestershire sauce, and brown sugar, everything is going in the crock pot together. Now, if you're unfamiliar with what a crock pot or a slow cooker does, you are in for a treat because this baby will cook your food for hours. You don't have to tend to it really. You don't have to do too much but let it cook. Um, obviously, I do not suggest leaving your home because it does go on for a couple of hours, but you do not want to leave it completely unattended. Now that you have all of your ingredients in the crock pot as well as the chicken, you're going to make sure that the chicken is totally coated with everything. So take your time mixing it around, making sure you're getting it all over, okay? Now since I used uh, rotisserie chicken the first time around, I decided that I was going to leave it on the low temperature for about three to four hours, considering it was already cooked, so I'm really just allowing all the ingredients to really get soaked up into the chicken. So I don't have to leave it on very, very long if you decide to go with that rotisserie route. 
Okay, so again, I left it on for about three to four hours and it was on low. If you've decided that you were going to go with raw chicken, um, I would suggest putting it on high for three to four hours if you're really trying to get through things. Or you can leave it on low for about six to seven hours, okay? So this is really up to you, but the main thing is that you don't want your chicken raw, all right? So if you're going to do it on high for three to four hours, that's cool. Or if you rather have it on low, leave it on for about seven to eight hours. Once you've given your chicken the allotted amount of time, you're going to go ahead and open the lid, grab two forks, and you're going to start shredding the chicken a little bit within the pot, not aggressively, but you just want to kind of separate it a little bit just to make sure that everything is cooked. If you feel like it's not done the way that you prefer, go ahead and leave it on a little bit longer. But if you're feeling confident about it right now, go ahead and take the pieces out of the pot, but you're going to take them out onto a cutting board, okay? You're going to shred it up onto this cutting board. So with those two forks, you're basically going to treat them as like claws, and you're just going to separate the chicken until they're in a lot of different size strands, small, big, all of that, but you really just want to shred it up. After you've gotten it to your desired size and shape and all that good stuff, you're going to put it right back into the crock pot and allow it to get covered up in that sauce. Make sure you really mix it in, and once you're happy with what it looks like, go ahead and grab your bun, take it out, set it up right on there, and uh, yeah, enjoy that, baby. I hope you all get a chance to enjoy these really great recipes that I shared, and I hope my voice sounds a lot better the next time I speak to you all. But besides that, enjoy this great, wonderful day. It's really nice outside. It's about, uh, I think about 85 here in New York and sunny. So we, we got a good one. But wherever you are, enjoy the rest of your day. Try out these really cool recipes. Let me know if you do and how you feel. You can at me on Instagram at FeedRemise. That is S-E-E-D-R-E-M-E-I-C-E. Take care. Thank you, Remise. Appreciate it. Always love having you on, and, man, made my mouth water for sure. All right, guys, we're going to get right into it. We're going to be back with our next guest, Ryan Casada, in just a moment. So we're going to play a little bit of uh, one of his songs. This is Bamboo Plant. And when we come back on the other side, we're going to have intern Royal Rose and I interviewing the one and only Mr. Ryan Casada. You're listening to the Left of Straight show right here on the Left of Straight radio network. Spoken with a guitar that won't stay in tune I left my good one in my bedroom Haven't been home in a while Stop showing up at my job Had a talk with God saying That's not what my heart wants Think you'll figure it out Sure I'll make it some other way I'll make it some other way Man is piling up in my front door All my bamboo plants are probably dead by now Neighbors wondering where the hell I went And if my check for rent will ever be sent somehow Think they'll figure it out Think they'll figure it out That she's lost to a different crowd So she stopped drinking tall cans overseas Oh Judy, don't you know that alcohol is a disease It still rattles 
All righty, guys, we are back, and that was from our first guest, which Royal was able to get set up for us today. Royal, you've just been killing with our interviews. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. And I'm going to go ahead and let you take it away and introduce our first guest. Hey, so I was on Tuesday back at it again. Um, I'm going to do my little spiel for Ryan, and then we'll go ahead and start the interview. So our first guest tonight is a jack-of-all-trades. He writes, he sings, he gives motivational speeches. He's an activist, performer, actor, and just about everything else under the sun. Ryan Casada has been featured on all sorts of articles from the New York Times to BuzzFeed, and his hit song, Daughter, has over 1 million views. I actually found him through Daughter, so I had to mention that. Uh, Ryan's activism began when he was 13 after joining the Safe Schools team, beginning his long record of public speaking and leading him to be known as the youngest keynote speaker for the Philadelphia Trans Health Conference. And this is when I breathe back in. Okay. And then since starting his career as a teen, Ryan has appeared on CNN, the Larry King Live Show, and even the Tyra Banks Show. So as you can tell, we're lucky to have him because he's busy, busy, busy. And here he is, uh, Ryan Casada. Hello. Thanks for having me. Hey, what's up? (laughs) No, yeah, thank you for coming. Like I said, you're like extremely busy. So I was glad that we were able to get you on the show at all. Yeah. All right. So. So just to start out, we'll do, you know, a little bit of background information. So where did you grow up and what kind of a kid were you? Grew up on Long Island in New York, uh, right on the water. And what kind of kid was I? I, I was shy. I've, I've pretty much always been shy. I've grown out of it a little bit. But I definitely was shy until I go on stage, really. And I was very athletic, too. I played, um, I played softball. And that was, like, my main thing besides music back then. So super into sports and music. Yeah, when you said shy, I was like, oh, me too. And then you said sports, and I was like, nope, (laughs) I'm not a sports person. (laughs) So as far as once you actually, you know, got into your career and, you know, now that you've had, you have, like we were talking about, the 1 million views you have over seven million views on your YouTube, obviously successful, obviously busy. So where would you say, like, where you're in, at your, in your career right now, like, how does it, you feel, you know, where you're, you're happy where you're at, or where do you want to go from here? I'm definitely happy where I'm at. I always want to go bigger. I mean, I, I think I've always been like that since I was young. I've just been very driven, and I always want to get to the next level, whatever that may be. And I have a lot of goals and dreams, and as I reach my goals and my dreams, I, I make new ones and I I'm, I'm super grateful for where I'm at. And a lot of it's like unbelievable, you know, like the 1 million views on daughters is still unbelievable to me and it's shocking. And I'm, I'm just very grateful for this experience that I've had in the industry and getting to play shows and traveling all over the world. It's been a really beautiful experience. Yeah, uh, one million views is not easy for anybody to reach, like, especially when it was kind of like your first big hit that people started to hear about. That's kind of crazy. (laughs) And especially when it deals with like trans issues, you know, it's not easy for, especially I feel like trans men, a lot of times, you know, people don't talk as much about trans masculinism. So when you see Mm -hmm. a trans man or trans masculine person kind of get out there, that always excites me because I'm like, my people. (laughs) Yeah. Um. With your music, what was what has touring with your band been like? Do you have a favorite memory? 
touring is super fun. I've I've only toured a little bit with my bands. Um, it's definitely like super expensive, more expensive to tour with a band. Touring in general is just really expensive, especially when you're an indie artist and there's no like guarantees and things like that. But I've I've gotten to meet people all all over the country. I've become friends with so many people that I've met at shows in different cities and uh, some favorite memories of being on tour. Um, There's been some like really big shows that, you know, we weren't expecting to be big and that's always super exciting. And I love, you know, getting to play the show and then going into whatever city or town it is and, having a meal and getting to see what it's like in that city. Um, You know, just in the United States, like every place is so different and there's so much different things happening with nature as well. So I definitely get a kick out of going to all the rest stops and seeing that sort of thing. I think my favorite rest stops are in Oregon and I also love spending time in Arkansas and performing there. So the whole thing's been been great I, I love being on tour this is like the longest I haven't been on tour or traveled for a show in I think since I was a young teenager so this is a definitely definitely a change of pace for me and a little break from traveling but I I miss traveling a lot yeah I feel like when you grow up with traveling and then there's a period where you're not able to do it it kind of feels yeah it would definitely feel weird it's the opposite for me when I travel at all I'm like this feels weird because I'm sedentary so I don't. I just mm-hmm. don't leave. So when I do leave, yeah, whatever you're used to, whenever you change it, you're like, oh, this is what it's like for other people. <laughs> yeah. So you know, since we are an LGBT show and we like to talk about those sorts of things, um, when did you come out to yourself? Um, to my, I mean, I when I came out to myself, I only like came out to myself a couple months before I came out to the people around me. I I came out as bisexual when I was 12 years old I was in seventh grade or about to go into seventh grade and then I came I started coming out as trans when I was I I think I just turned 14 and um it took me like a little while to come out to everyone like I was going pretty slowly with it in the beginning of coming out and first it was like I just told the people at the LGBT center then I told my immediate family and then uh, when I was 15, I went on the Larry King live show. So it went from like a few people knowing <laughs> to literally the entire world knowing. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I remember freaking out when I was just telling my mom. So I can't even imagine, especially that young. Okay. Like, uh, I can't even imagine at 15 doing something like that. That's crazy. But, you know, that's awesome. Thank you. So, like, with, with relating back to that, um, I think early transition is something that doesn't get – it gets talked about, but a lot of times it gets talked about, like, in a negative light. Um, when people talk about um, letting, like, their kids transition, sometimes people express maybe fear that it might be the wrong decision or fear that, you know, their kid will, in quotation marks, change their mind and not be happy about it later. So since you mm-hmm. did transition when you were early, what were some of the positive ways that – um, choosing to do it early and being able to do it early uh, helped your either your mental state, your physical state. Just how how did it help you in general? Well, it definitely helped my mental and emotional state. I was really depressed before I came out as trans, and coming out and having support around me was 
really essential to healing. And uh, I think honestly, like I, I think I, I, I don't know. I, getting to transition young was is great for me. Like I've never been in the experience of being an adult as a woman. So I think that's like pretty cool. Like I, I, I don't really have that experience and I've just been able to also be like a teenage boy, you know, like a lot of people don't get that experience. And luckily for me, when I was a teenager, I got to go to a music camp and I, I was placed in the boys dorm and everyone at this music camp was super cool about my transition. So I just got to have the same experience as every other teenage boy at that camp and then grow into myself, you know? So I've experienced, I guess, you know, my adolescence and as an adult now. And I think a lot of um, trans guys don't, they don't get to experience what it's like to be young and their gender and out as their gender, I should say. And I feel very lucky that I got that experience. And I think it did give me more confidence as I got older as well. Yeah. And um, it's also, uh, it's like, too, not having, like, when you have, like, a secret, you know, you know something about yourself. And it's, like, this secret that you're not out yet, but you want to come out. Like, there's a burden in that. And there's this heaviness of that. So I didn't have to carry that around that long. And that's like a gift, I think. Yeah, as soon as you started, um, as soon as I was reading your story and then you started talking about it, uh, it is interesting because I really didn't come out until I was like 17 or 18. So basically my whole, you know, high schoolhood was um, as being seen as a woman. And uh, mm-hmm. when I first came out, it, it took me several years to get on testosterone or really make any huge changes. Like I knew I was male, you know, I'm also really gender non-conforming. So for other people, it was really confusing. You know, your family's confused about it. They're like, well, why are you so effeminate? What, you know, why are you transitioning in the first place? And I'm like, I'm just a gay man. (laughs) I'm just a gay man. Yeah. You know, be nice to me. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That's why uh, I, I was listening to some of your other singles and, um, I was, the one that really caught me, besides daughter, obviously, the other one that really caught my, my ear, I guess, was uh, the gender binary, fuck you, because mm-hmm. obviously that spoke to me, <laughs> because yeah. being, being able to transition later in life, as wonderful as that is, you know, it, it, like you said, it's, it's great to be able to do it early, because you do get to experience your teenagehood as the gender that you are. Um, I'm experiencing mm-hmm. teenage boyhood at the ripe age of 24, so it's a mm-hmm. little bit different for me, but you know, I guess yeah, I'm still yeah. kind of experiencing it. So relating back to the, the gender binary, fuck you, um, could you talk a little bit about, like, e- even that and daughter? Like, what do those songs mean to you as a transgender person? Sure. Well, the gender binary song, I actually wrote that because I get a lot of backlash about my decision to not take testosterone as a trans guy. So I actually wrote that song, like, to not only to like society in general that doesn't accept trans people, but to trans guys that won't let other trans guys have their own path. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah. So I wrote that and it's like about toxic masculinity and tearing that down. And then daughter 
is about my transition with my dad and what these songs mean to me. I mean, they're just, they're my truth and they are, uh, they're important to me as a trans person for sure. But for me, they're like, they're like the same as all my other songs because I just feel like I write from my honest experience in life and all of my songs are just my, just my personal experience. Yeah, actually, when um, when the line about choosing not to take testosterone came up, um, well, I, I obviously I, I did start to hear, I mentioned that already. I have no desire to get like top surgery, and I'm the only trans man I know that doesn't want to get top surgery. And it's I, mm-hmm. I, I kind of felt that when you said that. I'm like, it, it is really weird how you, you feel like to be trans, you have to like, there's a checklist, and if you don't check everything off, you're not really trans. <laughs> like yeah. if you don't cut your hair or you don't like you said even wear the, the right clothes in quotation marks you don't take tea or hormones or get surgeries it don't and it I think a lot of times can even it can be backlash from other trans people have you experienced that yeah that's um that's like what the song is about is backlash from other trans guys that try to force okay. their opinions and gender stereotypes on me yeah, I've never had a trans woman say anything like that to me. It's always been other trans men from my community that, you know, yeah, they, they do exactly. buy into the whole toxic masculinity and, like, um, the desire to pass a cis. I kind of talked about that on Tuesday with my other um, trans masculine guests. There's always, like, mm-hmm. that desire to pass a cis, and that's not something I ever really felt was important to me. So, I, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know if that was kind of a factor in not wanting to get top surgery, but... I'm just very much, you know, it's my body and I kind of like it. <laughs> you know, I know mm-hmm. the whole trans thing is to hate your body, but I, I kind of got over that. And I'm like, I'm it's always, always going to be in my body. I'm going to have it for the rest of my life. I might as well try yeah. to like it. Yeah. The yeah. whole positivity. And yeah, I just feel like trans positivity gets so pushed to the side. So I, I really like the songs that are like bitey, the bite back ones. Thank you. So, like, even relating to that, um, like, trans positivity and the goods of being trans, um, what what kind of stuff gives you gender euphoria, like, the opposite of dysphoria, the not-so-fun side? Yeah, I mean, I guess just being myself, um, I, I, I don't know, I just, I guess, like, when, when someone calls me Ryan and he, him, it's just normal to me, you know, and then when people call me the wrong pronouns, and name it feels weird you know so that's mm. just like how it is for me but I I don't know I've been out for so long that I just kind of feel like I just am and I I just exist like I don't think about gender all that much and I don't relate things to gender anywhere as much as I did when I first transitioned I feel like when I first transitioned like everything was about is this feminine or masculine and that's oh, yeah. that I just don't think about that much I mean to be honest like the only times that I'm really actively <clears throat> thinking about being trans is when I'm in a public bathroom or when I'm in a conservative part of the country and I'm scared like that's really oh, the God, only yeah. times and that's like the only times where I feel that I need to be more masculine than I actually am you know and it, it's survival yeah, the, I feel like the trans experience, unfortunately, revolves a lot around survival, especially with bathrooms. Um, 
Mm-hmm. I, I've, I've been lucky and not so lucky. Um, I don't, I don't know if uh, you've had the experience of having to use the family bathroom almost all the time <laughs> to, to avoid, yeah, to just avoid it in the first place. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think, I think once you get past the whole getting people to get your name and pronouns right, it does become a lot more normalized. I'm I'm still in the not really passing stage, so I, people get my name right, but then the pronoun wrong, so I'm still in that in between stage. Um, mm-hmm. But there, yeah, just being recognized as you, honestly, is enough to get the gender euphoria for me. Yeah. So I got since, a question um, for you, Ryan. Yeah, go ahead. If I can jump sure. in for a second, Royal. Um, yeah, go ahead. Talk about. You talked about going on uh, Larry King for the first time at 15 years old. Did you ever feel any pressure or put any pressure on yourself? Or you're such an eloquent speaker. I've watched a lot of your speaking about it on different shows and things like this. Have you ever felt any pressure to have to be maybe more knowledgeable than you were at the time? I mean, I'm sure you learn more about yourself and about gender and about sexuality and everything every day. We all do. From 15, it's relatively young. Do you ever feel pressure Mm -hmm. early on going on these shows is like being the spokesperson for trans? And how have you kind of dealt with that? And how has your journey been to yourself learning about the experience? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I'll call it pressure. I think especially when I was younger, like, I really only spoke about my experience, and I, I like, only spoke about myself, and I, I think I did that to be, like, super careful, because there wasn't that many stories out, especially about, like, other gender identities, and there wasn't, like, that much information online, you know? Like, when I came out, mm-hmm. just to give, like, some perspective, there were, like, less than 10 trans YouTubers transmasculine YouTubers. There were less than 10 surgeons in the country that would do top surgery. Um, insurance didn't cover any of that. Um, in New York State, it was still legal to bully people based on their gender in school. So it's like that's, that's the age of when I came out, you know. Um, right. And I was very lucky because when I was 13 years old, um, due to me being bullied, which which sucks, right? But because I was bullied, I got sent to the LGBT center on Long Island. And it was there that I learned at 13 years old that to fight back the bullies and the ignorant people and the people that just don't understand, I don't need to use violence. I could just use education. And I joined Mm -hmm. a speaking team at the LGBT center and we met every single week and they taught us LGBT history and they taught us how to get up and speak in front of crowds and they taught us to tell our stories in a way that people that don't have the same experience as us can understand so I am very lucky that I had that resource completely free to me Um, they even had like a little van to pick us all up like there is no cost at all so I'm super lucky that I got that experience so as I got older I was able to like educate more about terminology and that sort of thing and like pressure I I don't know if I would call it pressure because like going on all these tv shows and speaking on a big platform at such a young age like I wanted to do it you know and I I don't Mm -hmm. regret it Mm -hmm. at all and it did shift my 
my entire the entire path of my life like I did not have a normal teenage experience by any means um you know I was the kid that is on tv in my high school you know it's just like that's not a normal experience that other people in my high school were having um but I also I did feel a responsibility because when I came out I did not know anyone else my age that is trans and that was a problem for me because I felt alone so when I got the call to go on Larry King I was like I need to go on this show so that I could find other people like me and so that other people could find someone like them. Like, I bet there's mm-hmm. more of us out there. And it it did. Like, it, it connected a lot of people. And I went from feeling all, of a, all alone to having a bunch of people, hundreds of people, write letters to my P.O. box saying that they no longer felt alone. Um, so... Yeah, I just, I feel super grateful for the experience because, you know, who knows what would have happened if I continued to feel all alone throughout my my growing up. Right. Well said. Thank you. I appreciate that. Of course. So I'm I'm really curious about the, the LGBT center that you were talking about. Was that like, um, like separate from high school? Was that like extracurricular or was that where you went to school? No, the LGBT center was completely separate from my high school, but it happened to be in my hometown at the time. It's not anymore, but it was in my hometown where I went to high school. I went to Bayshore High School where Harvey Milk actually graduated from. And, yeah, I think I was able to just, like, I was in walking distance of the center. Like, it couldn't have been more perfect, right, to, like, have this, oasis right there for me and it was there that I got to meet other LGBT people for the first time and I was there pretty much every day after school and we did have a we did have a gay straight alliance in my high school and I was the president for the last uh two years that I was in high school that's awesome yeah you you started the activism and public speaking and like basically everything really young (laughs) It's nice to yeah. hear, um, like, positive stories. Like I said, you really don't hear enough of um, good childhoods and good teenagehoods and um, just overall just happy stories about trans people, trans people especially, LGBT people in general. But mm-hmm. So how, how was the experience, um, like, being trans in the public eye? Um, that's something that is so foreign to me just because um, I, I, I'm pretty introverted. I'm, I'm kind of – it was just kind of my friends and family. So to me, I can't really even imagine what it would be like for strangers to kind of know that my story, like my coming out story, my transition. So uh, how would you describe mm-hmm. that, like from your perspective? Uh, it's, it's kind of hard to describe. I mean, I honestly, I don't really know any other way. I don't really know any other life. Like my life has been pretty much constant interviews for the last 13 years. And like I said, I don't regret it. I'm super grateful for it, but it does add this extra element of stress to my life. And, you know, there's good stress and bad stress. It's just like a lot extra added to someone's life. Um, And, you know, there's criticism from strangers like all the time. And there's a lot of things that 
I experience because I'm in the public eye that a lot of my friends don't experience. And a lot of that feels very isolating. Um, But as I've gotten older, I've gotten to befriend other people that are in the public eye. And that's definitely helped me a lot to not feel as like othered, but um, it's, you know, and not only that, but like, because of this experience, I've literally been able to meet people all over the world, and I'm pretty good at keeping in touch with people. So I have, like, friends all over this country, and I I love that. Like, I love that I could pretty much go to any state and have a place to stay and have people to hang out with that I love. Like, it's, like, that's the blessing part of it is connecting with other humans. Yeah, nice. the the chosen family and love LGBT loved ones. Just having that community, I think it 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 really is isolating until you know that that community is there. And then, like you said, mm-hmm. you have friends across the country. I mean, even if you don't, you know, tour and go state to state, you you really do have friends and family all across the country. I mean, mm-hmm. you, even in my situation, if if a trans person who I didn't even know, you know, needed a place to sleep, yeah you know, come in my door mm-hmm. and I'll, I'll figure out a sleeping bag for you. I mean, there, there yeah, really yeah. is that sense of solidarity because, you know, even if you haven't been through it, you know how it is. <laughs> it, mm-hmm. There's experiences from other trans people that I, I couldn't imagine, but just having that basis of us both having that identity in common, it's like, I kind of get it, you know? Yeah. That's why they say we're like trans siblings. Oh yeah, yeah. My um, my parents are uh, a lesbian couple. They've been together for 20 years, and uh, something we like to do when we're in public, because you know we, we all have gaydars. They're lesbians, and I'm a gay man. So we, mm-hmm. if we see somebody that we think is part of the community, we always say that they're family. You know, if mm-hmm. if there's somebody that you know, if anything tips us off that they might be gay, we're we're always looking at each other and we're like, they're probably family. We always call mm-hmm. each other family, no matter what. So I, nice. I think that's, yeah, I mean, e- even if you don't have the same experience of being able to, you know, come out and transition when you're young, just knowing that, that I mean, like that community center, that sounds like heaven to me. I would have loved that when I was a kid, yeah. but my parents, I, I was yeah. lucky if my parents were my community center, my lesbian parents, but. Um, yeah, I'm very lucky. But like I said, that's awesome. I mean, I love hearing good stories about family. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So um, with talking about so much talking about trans people, um, something I like to ask, too, is as a trans person, what is something that especially since you've done so many interviews and probably most, if not all, were cis people, um, what, what, what is something that you want cis people to know or understand about being trans? Um, I mean, I really just want cis people to know that trans people are human, you know, and we also experience a lot of the same things that cis people do, you know, and like a lot of the same things or don't like a lot of the same things. Like, um, I'm really lucky because I have a lot of cis friends and I've had a really good experience with my friends and I don't really feel like they treat me different because I'm trans. And like, those are the type of people that I really look forward to spending time with, like people that I don't have to, like, I could just be Ryan, you know? I don't have to think about being trans. And uh, I think, I guess, going back to that, like, your uh, question before, like, that's probably what gives me gender euphoria is 
like when I get to Mm -hmm. be myself, especially around people that I'm comfortable with. Yeah, I think um, a lot of times it really is that simple. It's just a matter of seeing me and maybe not seeing my gender first, not saying that my identity or gender isn't important, but recognizing, like you said, that I'm, I am a person before I am, you know, anything else mm-hmm. underneath of that. <laughs> you, mm-hmm. I have thoughts and feelings and dreams and likes and dislikes just like anybody else. And I also mm-hmm. happen to be trans. Yep, exactly. There's so much more <laughs> to us than just being trans. Well, and it's, it, that always makes me feel silly because I talk so much about being trans when I invite trans guests on. But I, I, I think it's important just because um, for the LGBT community, the T kind of gets cut off a lot of time. So I feel like it's easy to talk about, it's easier, I shouldn't say easy, it's easier to talk about being gay or lesbian and then a little less easy to talk about being bi and a little, little less easier to talk about being trans. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I hate focusing only on that, but I think it's, it's kind of nice to talk to, you know, another trans person who kind of knows what you're talking about and ask Definitely. about happy things <laughs> like in euphoria instead of, you know, what surgery have you had? That's something I'm glad yeah. that people aren't asking as much anymore. Yeah, definitely. So did you have experiences like that when you were younger, when you were a teenager, things were a lot different, I guess, for trans people. I think people have been kind of schooled a little bit more as far as giving interviews. So have mm-hmm. you noticed that? Like have, have interviews, interviewees, wh- whoever, have they gotten better at talking to you, talking about you, things like that? Yeah, I think some some people have. I would say most people have. I mean, when I was on Larry King and Tyra Banks, they both asked me about surgery, which I feel like is just so inappropriate to ask uh, a minor anyway. But um, Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there's only been like a few experiences recently, like in the past few years, where they've just asked weird questions. But I don't know. People definitely are more aware. I mean, when I when I came out as trans, when I said transgender, people didn't know what that meant. So if I said trans, no one knew what that meant, you know. And now you say I'm trans, and like probably most people know what that is, you know. So things have changed a lot. People know the terminology more. Yeah, and and with trans terminology, um, I know that was one of the things that that they, one of the kind of topics that you were comfortable talking about, is there trans terminology that you feel like um, people still kind of aren't getting? Because I, I feel like transgender, I, we can kind of check starting to mm-hmm. understand that. But as far as anything else, are, is there other terms that have come up that you're like, okay, this person either doesn't know what they're talking about or? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people are confused about a lot of the gender variant terms outside of trans man and trans woman and I think that's something that I could even work on more and probably a lot of trans people could work on more as well like with um, non-binary identities yeah a lot of there's a lot of identities that I think like we definitely need more education on I feel like um, the the more western like Americanized ones I, I feel like I'm more familiar with them but um, mm-hmm. the the non-Western, um, non-colonized type uh, gender identities, I know of them, but I know a lot less about them, even mm-hmm. though that's probably one of the most fascinating things about learning about trans history is just how being trans was treated in other communities, other societies, 
I don't know if that's something you've ever like kind of explored, but I think it's really interesting, even though I just admitted that I don't know as much about it as I want to. Yeah. I mean, there's always more to know. Yeah, there really is. Even when you are the thing that you're looking up, there's always more because you can't be everyone that's trans. So yeah. all you can do is try to learn and listen. Totally. So for learning and listening, um, what what do you kind of hope for um, for the future for trans people? Well, I definitely hope for equal rights. We have a really long way to go with that. Um, and I just hope that more and more people are able to be themselves and feel safe to be themselves. Yeah, I think it really does come down to, like, just being able to exist, like, in a you know, bathrooms are the one thing that always comes back to it. But even just being able to walk down the street and be trans or mm-hmm. even recognizably trans. Yeah. Did you have any more questions, Scott? Well, uh, we got to finish up here. We got about five minutes left. I did want to kind of get back in to your music, Ryan, if we can. I mean, we, uh, we were talking about, Royal was talking about your different titles you've had in your songs. It sounds like you're more of a lyric person first before the music comes to you, um, trying to talk about your experiences. Is your music kind of staying the same? Or you, do you always write lyrics first, or do you kind of start to hear music first now and add the lyrics later? How do you create your songs these days? Um, I mean, pretty much like as I'm walking around all day I I hear lyrics like all the time in my head and rhythms and melodies and and all of that I try to record as much as I can on my iPhone when I'm when I think of something that I think might be a Mm. song later um but I I definitely you know just play music and then something will come up too with lyrics so I mean I wouldn't say it's like one way or the other and yeah I mean I just uh I don't I honestly like I don't really know how the songs come to me like it doesn't really feel like me it feels like they're just like gifted to me that's awesome and is there anyone if you were able to choose someone to either write a song for or to collaborate and sing someone else's song who would be your dream collaborators these days um you know, I have a few songs that Taylor Swift should should get from me, <laughs> but um, <laughs> and I I have some like stuff that just feels like way too poppy for me, maybe for right now. But you know, if someone if someone wanted to get them, they can. Um, I definitely I would love to get into that side of the industry industry and write songs for other people for sure. Um, and there's, I mean, I, I love so many different genres and I really just, I listen to like pretty much everything. Um, right now I've been listening a lot to Kendrick Lamar and I'm like super inspired by him right now and his, um, the, the, some of the recent albums. So that's what I've been like just listening to kind of on repeat the last week or so. Yeah. When I listen to Sober, um, when I heard Sober the first time, my first thought was, wow, that is, that's a lot different, but I like it. <laughs> Thank you. And Royal said you you have dabbled in acting, of course. Is that something you're still passionate about? 
if a right project came along, do you think you would like to uh, continue in acting as well? Yeah, I love it. It's a performance, you know, and it, it feels like that to me. It feels kind of like the same vibe as playing the concert, and I just love to create. And uh, I am in a movie that's coming out sometime in the near Ooh. future called Two Eyes. So I'm super stoked about that. And there is an IMDb page. There's not that much info out about the movie yet, but there will be uh, sometime in the near future. And I'm I'm really excited for this project to come out. And I hope that it does lead to more acting opportunities. Fantastic. Are you able to well, say what platform it's coming out on? Um, I don't have information yet, but I'm sure that uh, more will be revealed, and I promise a movie is coming soon. <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep an eye All out. All right, well, gentlemen, we are about out of time here. I want to give you a chance, Ryan. Let everyone know where they can find you. Is it easier to go through your website to find all your social and everything? Or what's the best way if people want to reach yeah. out and follow your music and follow your career and maybe follow you on social? What's the best way to get a hold of you? Yeah, ryancasada.com, R-Y-A-N-C-A-S-S-A-T-A.com. And you could find me on all social media under the name Ryan Casada as well. Fantastic. And Royal, you're doing such a great job representing trans men and all of our interns. If the uh, listeners out there want to start following you and the fellow interns, where can they follow you guys at? Left us straight on pretty much every platform. <laughs> we have Twitter, we have Instagram, we have Facebook. Very good. Left us straight radio are all of our interns out there. Well, Ryan Casada, it's been absolutely amazing getting to know you. Thank you so much for heeding Royal's call and coming on the Left of Straight show. Royal, great job as always. We're going to go ahead and play out to your uh, song. Uh, I guess it's maybe self-explanatory, but Extended Vacation. Give us a little background into what that song was all about when you were writing it. Cool. Um, yeah, that song is pretty much about being in one place for a while and falling in love and writing music. And also uh, it was kind of like an apology song that I hadn't released an album in a while. Uh, my last album came out on March 27th, just this previous March. So there's finally some new material out there. And that song was just about promising people that there was more music coming soon. So I uh, hope everyone can hear the album, too. It's called The Witches Made Me Do It, and it's available on all streaming platforms. Fantastic. All right, you heard it here first. Get that album, and we're going to play out to Extended Vacation. When we come back, we're going to have my interview with Edwin Alexis Gomez. Like I said, a great filmmaker. His new movie, Joyride, is streaming on your local PBS stations all across the country. You're listening to Left of Straight Show right here on the Left of Straight Radio Network. Stand the line for us, Ryan. Suffer from a little dehydration. Feeling like I'm on a vacation. Friends are calling into the station looking for me. All the talk about immigration. Don't really know what's going on in the nation Got a wife and an oral fixation Don't let me be 
much to Ryan Casada. We appreciate him coming on and a big thanks to intern Royal for uh, get it, reaching out to Ryan and get him on the show and answer those great questions. We're going to finish up the show tonight with a great interview by an up and coming filmmaker. He has a new film Joyride that's out now. Uh, as I said earlier, he got a grant to make this through Latin PBS, um, Latinx PBS. And read this great film. It's about a grandmother and uh, two granddaughters taking a trip to the Grand Canyon to kind of release some demons. So it's a very cool interview that I did just the day before yesterday. 
We're going to have a little bit of time to talk on the other side. So we'll play a song here. And when we come back, we'll be talking to Edwin Alexis Gomez. Listen to Left of Straight show right here on the Left of Straight radio network. My demons are so heavy, there's no space for fear. These demons lie with me beneath all my ears. Whisper to others, calling their meaning. Just to remind me I'll never win. And as I sit in the darkness,
righty, guys. We are back. That was Unsung Lily with their song Fly, which I absolutely love. And speaking of Fly, that describes my next guest. He's got an awesome new short video we're going to talk about, an amazing career. He is found by my intern, Loviana, and he's a writer, director, actor, and editor. Comes from a long lineage of the same. His parents emigrated to Los Angeles from Nicaragua, and he was born and raised right there in Southern California. He uses his creativity as a passionate community activist, and his work ranges from documentaries to features, and he's produced films in collaboration with various nonprofit organizations in and around the L.A. area. One of his latest works is currently a part of PBS's Short Festival, started July 13th and runs through the 24th. It's called Joyride, and it touches on the joy of family and the pain of domestic abuse in a beautifully written and directed short. I'm so excited to talk to him all about it. Please welcome Left to Straight Show for the very first time, Mr. Edwin Alexis Gomez. Edwin, how you doing, buddy? I am so good, and I am so happy to be here with you. Thank you for having me on. It is my pleasure. I'm excited to have you on the phone to talk about your career, this great short that you've done. How are you doing, my friend? I mean, all the restaurants are getting ready to close again in L.A. Are you a Postmate guy, or do you get to cook? <laughs> uh, I cook, but I am a Postmates guy. I know we're, we're, you know, hitting that second time we need to go back in quarantine. So I know it's really hard. Like some family members are taking it hard. But, uh, you know, we're in this together. And I think the thing is keeping everybody safe. Luckily, you know, uh, there's this film festival that you don't even have to go to a theater for, you know, and, and it's kind of, it's been good. You know, we've been safe. I, I feel really blessed right now. With, with the climate in our country, you know, with COVID, um, with everything uh, around Black Lives Matter and us really looking at police brutality and how we can be allies, you know. So it's, it's a good time um, right now to really be introspective, to be at home, and to, to honestly, literally, and meta- metaphorically clean house. You know, like, what are the things that we want to be doing? What are the things that we're passionate about? So at least I'm excited to be able to to embark on that again, you know? There you go. Well said. It is time for a reset. We can all reset our lives where we want it to be. And I think, as you said, this is a fresh start. So I like that. Very, very well said. Let's start with a little background because it's your first time on the show, Edwin. Let me know about, talk about um, your parents, where they came from, and then where you grew up in Southern California and what kind of a kid were you? Oh, yeah, definitely. I would love to talk about my family. It's been so good to have this opportunity with the film to also just explore just some of the stories of even extended family, right? Um, But Mm. both of my parents are Nicaraguan, and uh, they met in Nicaragua when they were 17 and 18. And, you know, it was a total telenovela-like story of love where they ran away (laughs) together to be together, you know? Uh, so my mom, nice. Gloria, my dad, Edwin Gomez, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's like it, it, it in itself, the storytelling that kind of was lived by my family is always something fun to, like, look at. Uh, but one of the things that was really great was um, my mother, you know, came to the States in the 70s, um, pregnant with my brother, Alan, um, had to leave my brother, Joe, and my dad behind because at that time, uh, since her stepfather was an American citizen uh, from Brownsville, Texas, 
um, she had to move to this country to keep her citizenship. Um, mm. so she did that, you know, in the seventies and came alone. And, you know, she would always tell me that, uh, she would cry in the shower. She would only allow herself to cry in the shower because she missed, you know, my father and, and my oldest brother, uh, Joe mm. at the time when he was sure. little. So, so then, you know, shortly, uh, I would say like a year or two after that, you know, my father and my brother, Joe were able to come to the States and, and my family was reunited. Um, but you know, some of some of, and they actually settled in East Los Angeles. And then uh, two years before I was born, uh, my family moved to Baldwin Park, which is maybe like 15 to 20 minutes outside of downtown LA with no traffic, of course. Um, and so <laughs> I grew up, <laughs> I grew up and, um, and just was raised here in Baldwin Park in the San Gabriel Valley, which is this beautiful little sleepy town. Uh, you can see the mountains. You know, it's also the birthplace of In-N-Out. Uh, so it's just a really small kind of city that I feel oftentimes you just drive past. But I kind of love that I grew up in a place that a lot of people drive past to go to Los Angeles or to go into the Inland Empire, you know, because I think right. it's those transitory places that really kind of do something for us in our development, right? Because it's like everybody's in transition, um, and the in the community of Baldwin Park has been changing over the years. I, I uh, moved back a couple of years ago, um, you know, to just help around with, with my family and just to make sure everybody's safe. And now with quarantine, you know, I'm, I'm currently quarantining with my father uh, and, and my oldest brother just so that we kind of have each other's backs uh, mm. in this time. Like I know a lot of families are doing. Sure. No, that's awesome. And well said. I love I love how you describe that. You have such a writer's and a filmmaker's perspective, the transitioning. I love that. I told you that I grew up around the same area, and it's messed me up to this day, my friend, <laughs> that I don't have mountains that tell me where the north is because the mountains are right there. So you always know which way north is. But I'm back here in Ohio that's flat as hell, and I can't find north to save my life if I drive 10 miles out of home. It's horrible. <laughs> no, totally, but we welcome you back whenever to your stomping there ground, you go you know <laughs> <laughs> thank you i like it uh tell dad that you're gonna have a guest on the couch for a while and i'll see you in a couple months oh. when quarantine's over <laughs> yeah we'll see you <laughs> there you go exactly well, talk about your journey as a as an opening queer artist when did you kind of first come out to yourself and when did you first find your lgbtq tribe Oh, that's that's such a beautiful question, and I appreciate that because I think that sometimes we forget to, to revisit where we started in our process because I feel like, honestly, like, and, and I know that most of your listeners must feel this way too, it's that it's almost like you've lived a double life for part of your life. And so, you know, growing up, it almost felt like I was the shell of a person, like I was doing the things that I needed to do to make sure to pass and and to not have too much friction, you know, and even when you're young and you're like, something's different, like, um, you know, like I'm this boy and I, I'm kind of interested in the, my other friends who are boys, but does that make me a girl, right? Like that whole journey of really not knowing, but knowing that you shouldn't mention it is something that we all kind of self-protect with. But in that journey, when I was 15, I decided, you know what, I'm done with living these double lives. I still remember the day it happened. It happened April 25th. Um, it <laughs> happened in French class to add to the drama. 
you know, and I remember I uh, telling one of my best friends, I'm like, hey, and, and also I just have to say I was on the buy now gay later plan, like personally, <laughs> like I, I, so I came out as bi first. So I was like, actually I'm bi, you know, and then I remember just like trying to like just move on with the day after coming out. And then I looked at the clock and it had been 15 minutes and I turned around and I said, actually, I'm sorry, I'm not bi, I'm gay. I'm just gay, you know, at that time. Um, and, wow. and it was a journey, you know, uh, later, later that uh, summer, I came out to my mother, you know, it was July 2nd. The thing is, what's funny about dates is like they get uh, so ingrained in my mind and my family has all these crazy things when it comes to dates, like things happen you know, on the same day. Um, and I, and I'll, I'll go, I'll, we probably will get into that too, all the, all the synchronicity and all of that. But, um, but basically, you know, it was a journey uh, coming out, uh, having my first boyfriend. Um, my, my brother Dennis, like uh, one of his best friends growing up, his older brother was gay. And I, I remember that the day I came out to my brother Dennis, he sat on my bed and he looked at me and he said, I just need you to be safe. He's, because, um, you know, his friend's brother actually passed from complications of HIV AIDS, you know? And mm. so in his mind, my safety was the thing that was so important. And then, and then uh, for some reason, the men in my life at this time, when I was 15, like came into my room and sat on my bed and talked to me because my dad did the same, you know, like, um, the day that my mom told him, because she told him the day after, he came to my room and he sat on my bed. And believe me, I was so afraid of how that conversation was going to go. But he sat on my bed and he looked me in the eyes and he said, son, I love you and I don't care who you love. Like, you are my son. You know? And so from That's that amazing. moment, yeah, it, it was a whole journey. You know, from that moment, you know, the 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 journey there with my mother was a lot more invested. Like, uh, like for example, at the time my mom was, and I was 15 at the time and my mom was very like, I want you to go see a sexologist. And I'm like, mom, it's like, you don't understand. Like that's when people are having, you know, issues sexually. Like, and that's not what it is. Like I'm not talking about the actions of like having sex. Like I'm actually talking about who I am. So anyways, at the time, being from a working class family, we were looking for therapy that was like free and all this stuff. So we ended up going to this area, I believe it's, um, it was, it was the Byzantine quarter in, in, the, in Los Angeles, where a lot of Central Americans themselves live. Uh, and we went to this church that was offering free therapy. And let's just say it was the first and the last time that we went to that therapist slash priest because the first thing he told my mother was, what do you think you did to make your son gay? <laughs> and so the conversation was not good. Right. So we left and then we found um, some other therapy and I actually found this amazing therapist and I forgot her name, but she was someone who would bring in all these things like that. There's been gay saints, you know, that there were, these two lovers who canonized us saints that there was cathedrals named after them in Europe, that I was okay, that it was a process that I needed to be patient with myself and with my mom. And so that whole journey kind of blossomed uh, when I turned 18. So there was this time when, um, when my mom and I got into it, 
you know, um, and I told her, it's just because you don't, you don't accept me. Like, that's kind of what I said. But then she kind of came back at me, and I was like, damn, you're really right. She was like, actually, Edwin, <laughs> I do accept you, and I do love you, but now you need to accept and love yourself. She's like, that journey, like, has finished with us, you know. And, and I think from that time, I just realized I have my brothers, all of their support. I have my parents on my side. And that really set me up to feel like regardless of what anybody in this world thought of me and, and, um, and me being queer, like whatever they thought, because then there was that journey too of finding out, like feeling that I was more queer than gay personally, you know, but, but I think that once you have those folks in your corner, and I know that that's not always the journey for everyone, I was lucky enough right. to have that journey. And it, it kind of made me have to push into the world um, in this way where it didn't matter what anybody said I, at home, I knew I had home, home base to go back to, you know? Well, that's so important. Yeah. Very important. And it's great that you're able to realize that. And it is a, a tough journey because it, it's nice when they do come around and sometimes they don't, but I think it just mm-hmm. shows the power of their love for you too. When they, when they kind of, especially with that kind of statement, that would just kind of floor me that she says you need to accept yourself. That is kind of awesome. Mom, mom has yeah. something we don't even know about, right? Exactly. <laughs> mom, mom, mom laid it on me that day. I was like, damn, uh, you're so right. <laughs> <laughs> well, what got you interested in the entertainment industry? I mean, you've worked all of the positions yeah. from, like I said, editor to, to production, to, director, mm-hmm. acting, all that. What was your interest in foray into that business? Yeah, you know, I, I, I'll I, just say that breaking into the business always feels impossible, and then you add all these extra layers to it, right? You add queerness. You add being Latinx. You add all these other layers, and you're like, how do I do right. it? How do I do it? Because the paths are always, I'm going to become an assistant, or I'm going to be a PA, or like, I'm just going to write and hope that I get into a program or get selected for a a screenwriting contest as a winner, so that I kind of have that, that star up here, you know, with my name. But for me, it was a, it was a journey. It was a journey full of uh, side steps to the left, if you will, because then I was Mm -hmm. like, you know, you, you know, it's, it's like, I will say that sometimes, um, you need proof that you can do it before you actually start doing it, you know? And and I always was a poet and a writer, but I just, writing a film felt so impossible, especially with how much I loved film, growing up being a cinephile, uh, having, you know, this breadth of knowledge of film, not only in Spanish, but in English, um, and, and just seeing what cinema could do right, and the languages that it employed to talk about our real lives. Um, so for me, it was, uh, I actually want to shout out uh, Professor Gina Lamb at Pitzer College because I went to the Claremont Colleges, uh, and I want to just shout out everybody at the Claremont Colleges because they really created a framework for me uh, on the way to think about film, but, but where the gaps were, were was how to make film, right, like how to make film in a more uh, traditional Hollywood way. Uh, And then also coming to terms with, well, what are you comfortable with when it comes to a traditional Hollywood way of doing it? 
which doesn't always isn't always the safest, isn't always the most supportive. And so, how do you create um, film and and start building that into your sets, right? So, I spent a lot right. of years working on documentaries. I was an urban fellow at Pitzer College, and I was helping a lot of students who were doing uh, doc- short documentaries uh, in collaboration with community orgs just all around L.A., um, basically uh, incarcerated women, young women, um, making video poems, uh, all the way to a um, – there's this boarding school for Native American students called Sherman Indian High School in Riverside, um, and it's like youth from all different tribes around the country um, going and learning not only the curriculum that's expected of them, but also traditional ways uh, just of Native American tribes, you know, um, the Native American medicine, the songs. And so we had this film program at Sherman as well. So in many ways, I was on this documentary track. And, um, and with Gina Lamb, you know, someone I consider such a, a great mentor, uh, we were also uh, documenting the house and ball scene, kind of like Pose, but here in, West, uh, in the West Coast ball scene. We would, we would work with Reach LA, which is this really great org out here that does a lot of right. work with the African-American community and communities of color documenting their balls, you know, which was always great seeing the category. So now seeing Pose, I'm like, oh, my God, I know that world because I actually was in the, like, modern version, you know, that they're portraying. So for me, the thing that was always in my heart was narrative. And it was like, how am I going to do it? And it just started with... Um, starting to write scripts and obviously um, being worried about format, being worried about, Oh, is this the right way? But then just being like, I'm going to just teach myself the, the, the way that it should be formatted and all those things. And then once I landed on like software, it was like, Oh, I don't even need to think about formatting. Okay. Now I can focus on story. Like what stories matter to me? What stories do I want to tell? And mind you, alongside that, I was also working to make money, uh, working nonprofit. So I was working for this domestic violence shelter uh, in Long Beach, uh, which the work was so wonderful to see men, women, and children, you know, uh, on their journeys to find safety and moving from, you know, being victims of domestic violence to survivors and seeing that shift in them, you know, and then also doing HIV, AIDS, and STD, STI prevention in L.A., So, like, there was a good amount of time that I spent doing that in place of being in the industry, in in place of PAing, right? And so there comes a point where, to be honest with you, when it started happening, it was because I I felt like I had wasted so much time, right? And for anybody who's listening who feels like they're wasting time and not doing what their dreams and their heart wants them to do, just know that you can take all of the things that you learn and you are writing, right? Like living your life is writing. Like, uh, you know, helping others or whatever your passions are, they influence your craft. So all those years I spent writing poetry, they became my action lines in my scripts, right? Because action lines have to move a certain way, but also have to visually give us, you know, the images that, that we're reading. Right, because your script always exists as a script. It always gets into the hands of a reader first. So, so really honing that craft. Just know that, like, 
I just want to say, like, just remember that nothing that you do is a waste of time. Everything is adding, you know, to your voice as a creator in any medium and anything. Like, I know that you yourself have experiences like that with this podcast. You know, it's like right. there's so many things that have happened in your life that have made your podcast format the way it is and that you bring to the table. So it's like it's one of those things that the journey was not a straight line. And when you're queer, it never will be, <laughs> you know, because exactly you're going to right. do some things that others might yeah, not have to, you know. So well said. I love the way you spoke about that. And I think that's so important for people to learn that you do need to take all these little steps along the way to get you to your path. And as long as you stay on the path, it doesn't matter how many steps it takes. Just stay on that correct path. And you took that to heart so much. I mean, you directorial debut, you get a grand jury award at the 2018 Outfest Fusion Film Festival. How exciting is that? Talk about that first Mm -hmm. film that you directed. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So at the, you're so right. And thank you for saying that. Um, so believe it or not, um, at the time I was uh, in uh, writer Josefina Lopez, who wrote Real Women Have Curves. Um, I was in her, she started a Latino screenwriting academy. It was a week long program that was so intensive because it was an eight hour day every day. You know, and it was a whole week, so it was the five days of that. And uh, we had to, we were going to finish the week, you know, um, with a script. Uh, and the script right. I started that uh, during that academy was Joyride. But Outfest had this contest, and it was a minute-long short. And some of the amazing Latino creators, like Angela Pedraza, you know, Eddie Zapata, like uh, Kelly Sanchez, you know, we, that's where I met them. And we were, and, and uh, J.R. Arinaga, uh, who is an executive producer and an editor on Joyride. So we all met there. And that week, uh, I mentioned to Angela, hey, there's this contest. I just wrote this two-page script. Uh, it's primarily voiceover. Uh, and I looped in uh, one of my great friends. I love him so much. We met in an acting class, Georgie Goico, this very talented, talented Puerto Rican actor, um, and we had this script called Quédate Callado, which means stay silent. And so what happens is with Outfest Fusion, there's always a contest to make a minute-long short based on right. a theme. And so the theme that year was stay silent and speak out, right? Like those were the themes. You could choose to uh, do a short on staying silent. You could do a short on speaking out. Or you could do one that blends the two. Well, Quédate Callado blended both. What it was, was um, there was this, uh, it was a story about these two friends who have a day at Santa Monica Pier, but one of them, you know, is deeply in love with the other. And so they go through the day and and the voiceover, and this uh, this film is in Spanish with subtitles, the voiceover is about how, you know, I want to tell you this, I want to tell you how it feels to be next to you, but I'm so scared to do it because I don't want to change what we have. You know, and so then, mm, and right. so then, and so then, the film leads to this moment on the beach where they're where they're quiet, and you can see all of the conflict in Georgie Goico, and then we have, uh, and then my other amazing acting uh, friend and, and collaborator, uh, Eddie Angiano, 
um, he turns around, and I gave him the line of the film. He turns around and says, forget the 10 years of friendship, you know, you kiss me or I'll kiss you. Like, it's just a, a moment like that they have <laughs> on the beach. And then, you know, they kiss and, and we're just left with this kind of small piece that says so much about taking a chance, you know, about going for I it. That. And, and so the win, to be honest with you, I'm really hard on myself and I expect a lot. So I wasn't expecting to win anything. And winning the Grand Jury Award for uh, having both of those themes represented in the film, it changed everything. It's like, it was that moment of proof I needed, where it's like, wait, and, and mind you, this was my first narrative film ever. Right. Right? Like, like for me, like... That's so I, awesome. I've written, yeah, I wrote plays, I did all this stuff, I made many documentaries, and I helped produce many documentaries. But to out the gate have a, a grand jury award for Quedate Callado, Callado, it changed my life. And, um, I bet. and I think that that's, yeah, it really did. And, and I mean, I just want to say, like, it just takes one minute. Like, I know how hard it is. Uh, it feels impossible. You feel like you need the crew. You need the budget. You need all these things. But if you just start with a minute of a film, it will change your life get you where you need to be. I love that inspiration. That is amazing. And your second short film, is it, uh, how's it pronounced? Is it L.A. Sad Boy or La Sad Boy? So it's called La Sad Boy, and it is a play with L.A. as well. Um, but it is La Sad Boy, which is kind of like referencing this idea of La Sad Girl, which is kind of like this idea of a chola, right? Like here in Southern California. But I wanted to queer it up, and I wanted to play with gender, which is why it's La Sad Boy instead of El Sad Boy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and it really it stars Georgie Goiko, and the story itself um, was developed with both of us. Um, we kind of so so one thing to know is like as someone Nicaraguan American and as someone Puerto Rican like Georgie is the one experience that we consistently have in Los Angeles is people always assume that we're Mexican, right? And it's, it makes mm. sense because the population, it's the, the chances of us being Mexican are very high uh, just because right. we live in Southern California. So we just wanted to talk a little bit about the microaggressions that we ourselves experience, you know, by everyone primarily in the industry, the idea that everyone is Mexican and that when you do right. say, Hey, I'm actually not Mexican. I'm X, Y, Z insert your other Latin American country here. You know, um, people just kind of brush it off. And they're like, yeah, 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 it's the same thing. And it's like, no, it's really not the same thing. There's <laughs> you, no. you can't tell a singular story of Latin America. There are many bridges to the themes and the things that have happened in Latin America, the nuances in language. It's like, if you put all these different ethnic groups in a room, we all say things differently. Right. It's all right. So this idea of that we're teaching Spanish, we're teaching French, you know, in school is it's laughable to me because I know that it, and, and it's like, and also like with Arabic, there's all these nuances in language and there's not a singular story. So La Sad Boy sure. basically follows, um, it, it follows Sebastian on his birthday when he goes to this uh, casting uh, for a gang member. <laughs> you have this queer character who's going through it 
and is feeling the loneliness of being in this country away from family because his mother's still in Puerto Rico, um, who's moving through the motions of things. Uh, and then, you know, seeing the microaggressions that he experiences at work, um, seeing somebody that he's connected with, who was played by Alex Blue Davis, one dear friend who is on Grey's Anatomy, um, plays uh, Sebastian's love interest, you know, in the film. And it, and it's, it's one of those moments where it's like, there's a moment where there's a break in the rapport between Sebastian and Liam. And it's so tragic because I'm like, I understand that Liam's not a bad person. And that's what I want to say too. It's like, I know that sometimes we don't mean for us to say, well, it's the same thing to be bad, but we just have to be aware that we can't just dismiss people's experiences or their lives. Right. 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 In any way, which also includes like how someone feels they were born to be, meaning like, you know, the, the transgender members of our community or gender nonconforming folks, like honoring people's pronouns isn't just like something to be PC. It's something to really show people that you see them, that they matter, that they exist, and that you respect and love that they're there, you know? And so I think that that's right. what was so beautiful about La Sad Boy. So we had Quedase Callado win. It showed that summer at Outfest before State Kitchen. And then Georgie and I started after that premiere and that screening, started working on La Sad Boy. And it was because, you know, again, uh, one of my producing partners, Angela Pedraza, RGP, Will Prada, like we all started collaborating and thinking, how can we make a film? Because La Sad Boy had an $800 budget. Um, how can mm. we make a film very leanly when it comes to cost that still has a maximum impact when it comes to story. And I feel like we really did that with La Sad Boy. Um, and it's such a... That's awesome. It, it's it's not out yet. Like, you can definitely watch Quedate Callado on YouTube. Um, but La Sad Boy is on its journey, you know, uh, to, to distribution itself. We're still looking for a distributor. and And that's one of those things that it's such a little gem where we showed with films that had government behind them at Outfest. And we didn't, we didn't screen at Outfest Fusion. I submitted it to Outfest Los Angeles, and it was selected, and it played alongside um, some beautiful Latinx films, um, you know, uh, Ode to Pablo by Adelina Anthony, and this beautiful film called The Orphan from Brazil, I mean, and those films had bigger budgets than we did. And so what that really sent me on the path and, and our producing team on a path of we can do this, right? We, we can make films That's amazing, and, yeah. and be in festivals with these, these films that literally had Brazilian government money, you know? That's amazing. Very, very cool. Well, let's bring it down to the third film here, which... Uh, you, as you said, you kind of wrote it first, which is kind of um, amusing. But let's talk about Joyride. I mean, you won a grant from the Latino Public Broadcasting to get this done. Talk about the story and talk about the excitement of seeing it in this PBS Short Film Festival right now. Yeah, definitely. And I want to shout out Latino Public Broadcasting because they have been the most wonderful collaborators like they their support their their work that they do with the Latinx community and to make sure to tell Latinx stories 
is so beautiful to see. Um, so I submitted uh, the script and everything with my producing partner. And I, I will tell you, I, I wrote the film grant uh, and I had no expectations at all. I was like, this is your first film grant. Don't start making all these plans or ideas, you know. And I and I will say, like, as someone, you know, Latinx, I think that, and specifically as someone Central American, I think that we learn so much to be polite and to not be audacious and to not take up space. And so for me, like, that was kind of in alignment with that. I didn't think that I would get the grant. I didn't. I didn't make it, mm. like, I didn't submit it with that idea. And then it right. happened, right? I, I, through those months and waiting and, and submitting, you know, La Sad Boy as my visual sample and going through that journey and getting the grant and being like, I have, like, we have the money to do this. Okay, right? Going from $800 <laughs> to, you know, a substantial amount of money to make a film um, was amazing. And so... Uh, going into that journey and really looking at, and and while you know we were kind of in development and in pre-production, we kept rewriting and we kept looking at how to make the story the strongest it could be, um, and and that journey was so beautiful to be like just hand in hand with LPB, you know, through the journey of thinking right. about locations, thinking about how this was going to happen, looking at timelines looking at delivery date and, you know, just getting there. So we got to a point in last summer, actually about a year ago as a 4th of July weekend, uh, we were filming at the Grand Canyon. We, we caravaned as a casting crew, uh, as a skeletal casting crew, mind you, uh, to Arizona. <laughs> and we all crammed into <laughs> an Airbnb and we all were like little sardines, but we were in it and we did it with so much nice. love and so much dedication. And I mean, I just have to say, then you look at the performances of like Blanca Araceli as Juana and Stacey Patino as Karina and Jenny Trevino as Marina. And I'm like, how, how is it that what I wrote and what I was hearing while writing is actually on screen? And, and it's like, they right. just captured those characters so beautifully. And, and so you know, obviously, every creative project has its hurdles, uh, has its things to look at and to just kind of work through. Uh, fortunately, slash unfortunately, and I say that because fortune and misfortune in my mind are the same thing because they always push you to where you're supposed to be. Um, right. We had to finish. We had to finish post production during a pandemic. So, so that was a ride in itself, and I am so grateful for my producing partners, Angela Pedraza and Evelyn Angelica Martinez, for doing the work with me remotely. I mean, we're in this world of Zoom calls now. We would FaceTime each other and just be on the phone going through all this. We would FaceTime, um, you know, our editor and executive producer, J.R. Arinaga, and work remotely. You know, we, we worked remotely with our colorists. Uh, Javier Quiste Hernandez giving color notes when all of us are on different screens was insane. <laughs> so my partner um, Ricardo Licea was also uh, our sound designer this time around and giving sound notes in the same way and trying to do that work remotely 
was so difficult, but my God, was it worth it? You know, when you look at it. And so these were things that, you know, you think uh, we could have just said, no, we could have just said, we can't do this. Um, This is too much, you know, but we felt it was so important for us to have this film out because we knew I, I had read. So after, so I left my jobs, you know, in nonprofit about a year and a half ago, two years now. And I said, I'm just going to pursue film and, and we're going to see what happens. Right. And, right. and then being like, I want to do the work as an advocate. I want to advocate for LGBTQ2S plus lives. I want to advocate for survivors of domestic violence. And then I'm seeing these numbers come in of how domestic violence and dating violence is on the rise due to the pandemic, due to us being at home, recognizing, well, where would you go? It's unsafe to even go to a shelter now health-wise, right? Right. Um, So it's one of those things where I was like, wow, this film is landing at the time it's supposed to land. So we pushed through and we said, no, we have to. And as a team and with the support of LPB, with the support of all of the the post-production crew. Another journey there was, um, you know, our composer, Will Monroe, and his partner, Brenda Carsey. You know, they did such a beautiful job in the, in the music they composed for the film. And then one of my wonderful friends, Luz Elena Mendoza, who's the lead singer of Ila Bamba, I was able to approach her about having the music that she makes that I would listen to all the time in my writing process become part of the film. And so that's kind of the contract you're seeing is all these different pieces. Right. And we did all of this, you know, from home when, when we're not like not in a traditional post production uh, journey at all. Well, no, I really, like I said, it's an amazing film. I really enjoyed it a lot. I mean, I thought the directing was superb. This little moment. I love little moments. Small moments of like when the grandmother puts her hand on the granddaughter on the steering wheel as they enter the park. Different little things, little moments I I live for in films. And I thought you have captured quite a few of those so beautifully. So well done, my friend. Thank you so much. That means a lot. And and honestly, it's, uh, you know, when I put my actor hat on, I think that, you know, the actors really live the lives of these characters they really right. did the work and so those little nuances those micro expressions the touching of the hand on the steering wheel by juana when she touches karina's hand that was because you know blanca araceli was in that moment you know she was juana and and i love that that those little moments are what really landed for you because i think that's what what why we make films Right, we make films right. so that exactly. they can capture those little nuances in our own lives and those intimate moments we have with family, with friends, with the people we love, with our partners. There you go. Well said. Well, we have to wrap things up here, but I want to uh, talk about in a second where they can find the film. Like I said, we're, the film festival is going through the end of this week, but I also, before we get back to it and, and wrap up with where we can find you in the film and all your social media, mm-hmm. talk about this upcoming book of poetry. I mean, you were selected in 2019 as a playwriting fellow for Lambda Literary. That is a huge award. Uh, talk about this book of poetry real quick in our last couple of minutes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So um, 
so I'll, I'll tackle poetry first. So I do not have a publisher currently, but I have this collection of poems that I've been putting together over the last few years uh, called La Segunda Muerte y Otras Cosas Olvidadas, which uh, translates as The Second Death and Other Forgotten Things. And it's split up in three sections. And the idea is, um, what does life and death mean? What does love mean? And how, why is it important? What is it that we need to remember? And so all of that, it's like my kind of misadventures in love. It's, um, it's what it means to, so my mom passed away a few years ago. So it's what it means to love someone so much that that bridge is still built even when they pass, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's sure. something that's kind of in my psyche since my mom passed away. Uh, it was an impetus for writing Joyride. Um, and then as far as, you know, Lambda Literary Foundation's Writer's Retreat, which when I got it, again, again, not being audacious, not expecting anything, um, I submitted my play that I created uh, with Abe Zapata Jr. and Ana Bernal, Ana Bernal being the executive director of this wonderful wonderful org that I love to showcase, which is Q Youth Foundation, which... Uh, which actually um, it, the mission is to tell stories from the East side, like where we're from, where, where we nice. grew up. Um, so uh, Anna started this really wonderful playwriting program and I had never written a play. And I wrote this play flower of anger that ended up getting me into Lambda literary foundations um, writers workshop, but it was through the, um, the creative journey with um, Abe Zapata jr that I was able to get the play where it needed to be. And so uh, I really recommend anybody who's trying to write to really access these programs because they're free of charge and they really teach you so much. Uh, Q-Youth does some amazing work with the community. And what I would say is um, as far as books or whatever it is that your listeners are trying to do in their life, like, I think it's just, just remember that the little steps you take every day amount to huge things. So even if you just okay. sit down and write 30 minutes, you know, like, and you feel it's, it's terrible, just showing up to the page every day is what you need to do to get those gems, all of us. Because I don't see myself as the singular creator. I am in, a com- I am in community with all of the artists that, you know, I, I know all the writers, all the directors, all the producers, like we're in this together and film is a collaborative thing, but, but the collaboration has stayed to specific people. And so for us, producing partners and I, for the, for the folks in our network, it's all about building those bridges. And that means LGBTQ+, that means BIPOC, which if, if some people aren't familiar with the term BIPOC, it means Black, Indigenous, people of color. It's about... Um, also women identifying folks, like really building those bridges and our allies, those folks who are not part of those communities, but really understand where we're coming from and the work that we're embarking on. So I think that's one main thing that I would say. The journey is like my joyride is just starting. Our joyride is just starting. And I hope to be able to be in a place a few years from now that we can continue doing this work and uplifting those folks that are trying to do it because I know it feels impossible. And then one day you wake up and you have this grand jury award from a one minute short, you know, you, you've been part of Lambda literary 
something that I that just happened this summer was I was selected to be part of Ona Voices, which is uh, our people of color uh, teaching other uh, emerging writers of color what to do with their craft to elevate themselves. And I really recommend accessing these programs, you know? Yeah, it's just, um, you know, I've never been in a space with all LGBTQ plus writers. Lambda was amazing for that. Uh, And then being in all writers of color and the fact that, like, I'm at that intersection, right? We all are at the intersections of our identities and finding the places in which you don't have to say anything and people understand, that's what we want to keep building with each other, you know? There you go. Very, very well said. Well, Edwin Alexis Gomez, I could talk to you forever, but we are out of time. Let everyone know where they can find this on PBS and where they can find you on social media, my friend. Yeah, definitely. So you can find the film on PBS.org. They have their short film festival on the website. You could also find the film on YouTube. If you type in Joyride, one word, and PBS, the film pops up. There's also, I want to showcase, there are also 24 other amazing films, docs, and narratives that everyone should support and watch. And then as far as following me on social media, I would direct you to my Twitter, uh, which would be Edwin Alexis, or my Instagram, which is edwin.mov, like movie. So edwin.mov. There you go. Yeah. Fantastic. Edwin, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the Left the Straight Show. Thanks so much for coming on, my friend. Oh, my gosh. Thank you for having me. I look forward to talking to you again soon and definitely going to In-N-Out. There you go. <laughs> Sorry, you we are welcome that one back one more anytime. Time. And when I'm in L.A., we are In-N-Out bound for sure. Stay on the line for me. Guys, we're going to play a little song here, and I'll be back in just a little bit. You're listening to the Left of Straight Show right here on the Left of Straight Radio Network. Oh, we are back, and I lied, guys. We don't have time for a full song here because we had a jam-packed show for you tonight. So welcome back. Thank you so much to Edwin Gomez. I hope you enjoyed listening to his story. And check out Joyride. It's only a 13-minute film. I really enjoyed watching it. It's a great story, again, about a grandmother and her two granddaughters. Big shout out to Ryan Casada for coming on tonight. Amazing singer, songwriter, and activist. Thank you to Royal, our intern, for setting that interview up and speaking. And, of course, Ramis Ellis, our special correspondent foodie with her Thursday Foodie Minute. You're going to want to try out either that pulled chicken sandwich or the other uh, chicken dish that she did, uh, chicken parmesan. So, Good stuff there. Tomorrow, guys, we are going to have, as my special guest, Kim David Smith. He's an Australian that's been living in New York for the past 10 years. And he recorded a live album from his last show, Live from Joe's Pub. And Joe's Pub is in New York City as part of the public there, a theater there, and did a great recording. So he's going to be my only guest tomorrow. Plus, we're going to have Jason Caceres as our Friday Fitness Minute. Uh, He'll be on live tomorrow as well. So it's going to be a great show tomorrow, 6 o'clock Pacific, 9 o'clock Eastern Time. And then we'll be back all next week with brand new interviews, Monday through Friday, 6 o'clock Pacific, 9 o'clock Eastern. Big shout-out to the interns keeping the office today. We got Justine and Loviana back in the studio. 
making us sound good and making all the buttons pressed okay. And we are going to play out just a little bit. We're running out of time here, so we're going to give you a little bit of wicked game from our good friends Brandon and James. Appreciate you guys tuning in tonight. Have a great night. Bye-bye. Que me ali-